T-minus 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. Coming to you from a small undisclosed outpost somewhere in Radioland, it's Because I Said So. Parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved for American parents. John Rosemond. People like this are a menace to decent society. Call in now about anything from toddlers to teens, even your 20-something toddlers who refuse to stop sucking on the pacifier of your standard of living. Let's not talk about it in front of the boy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. From American Family Radio Network, here's your host, John Rosemond. Yes, yes, yes. Welcome back to the show, folks. And uh, glad you joined us and hope you enjoy it. And uh, it's the little things that count. Always. That's true when it comes to being a proper spouse, a proper employee, a proper neighbor. And it's also true of being a proper parent. The little things add up to a big thing. Always. Furthermore, the big thing is either going to benefit everybody or the big thing is going to be to everyone's detriment. One of the things I notice about today's parents is that they are almost constantly doing little things that add up to big things that are to everyone's detriment. Their detriment, their kids' detriment, and even sometimes the detriment of strangers who happen to be uh, close by. For example, the parents who bring children into a restaurant and ask them where they want to sit. And then when the kids have finally decided where they want to sit, which is almost always not where the parents would have had them sit, the parents give them menus. Or if they can't yet read, the parents read the menu to them, asking the children what they'd like to eat. This takes several minutes. And they are, from the point of view of an observer, which I have been on many occasions, agonizing minutes. All of this gives the children the impression, all of these little things, asking them where they want to sit, giving them menus, reading the menus to them, asking them what they want to eat. It gives children the big impression that their status at the table is equal to that of their parents' status at the table. And that's the big thing right there. Asking children about little things, where they want to sit, what they want to eat, result in a very big thing. Children who believe they rule, that their likes and dislikes determine family decisions. In short, children who believe that they are entitled. Their parents at the same time are obviously, from the children's point of view, not entitled. Their parents are there to please them, to entitle them. And so, The logical outcome of this is children who are 
using a very traditional, outmoded, but still legitimate term, brats. Children who complain are ungrateful, argue. Children who demand are petulant. Children who tyrannize their parents with emotional outbursts. Children, in other words, who are not happy campers. Their lives are a constant drama in which they never get enough of what they want. You see these kids all the time in restaurants, shopping centers, in stores, other people's homes. They're very easy to identify. The entitled child, the child who never gets enough of what he wants. Their parents, meanwhile, ask themselves how such good intentions and hard work and giving have resulted in such parenting difficulties. Like I said, it's the little things that count. When parents make a child the reason for their existence, they're likely to get a child who believes exactly that, that his parents exist because of him, to do things for him, to give him things, to defer to him. Where would you like us to go on vacation, Billy? They ask. And Billy, who is five years old, tells them where he wants to go on vacation. I I don't know. That's just very strange that the parents work 50 weeks a year to go on a two-week vacation and they ask a five-year-old where he wants to go. Children are tyrants by nature, folks. If you've ever lived with a toddler, you've come face-to-face with that untidy fact of human existence. Dogs are not mean by nature. You can make a dog mean, but children are mean by nature. Dogs are not self-centered by nature. Children are. Dogs are not homicidal by nature. Children are. It is a measure of God's grace and mercy that he distinguishes us from the animals in one very significant way, a distinction the Darwinists cannot explain, by the way. He keeps us small until we have accepted our parents' dominion. Unlike every other species, God does not let us grow to full size in one or two years. It is one thing to be hit in the face by a two-year-old human who weighs 24 pounds. It would be quite another if the two-year-old human was six feet tall and weighed 180 pounds. Folks, God is good. How does one go about establishing one's dominion over a child? Well, it's very simple, actually. You act like you know what you're doing. You communicate to your child, I don't need your help to know where I want you to sit in a restaurant. I don't need your help to know what I'm going to order for you off the menu. And if your child doesn't want what you've ordered, then you pick yourselves up and you take him by the hand and you go home. And you put him in his room until he tells you he's ready to go to a restaurant and sit where you tell him to sit and eat what you order for him without complaint. Folks, believe me, making that sacrifice will be well worth it. And if that means he sits in his room for a week or two, so be it. During said week or two, he eats with the family, goes where the family goes, goes to school, goes to church. But when he's at home, he's in his room. And I'd go so far as to take his playthings out of his room and put him to bed very early. Yes, if it takes... 
Folks, I did something very similar to this with our daughter when she was a uh, about five or six years old. It took her three weeks to break through her stubbornness, her defiance, her rebelliousness, and finally apologize for whatever she had done. How do you establish authority over a child? You don't explain yourself. And if the child demands to know why or why not, you simply say, because I said so. Isn't this simple? You just act like you know what you're doing. You don't explain yourself. And you don't care whether the child likes any given decision you make or not. You act furthermore like you really don't care whether the child likes you at any given moment in time or not either. You know what's important. You love him. You would take a bullet for him. By the way, your child is not going to take a bullet for you. Have you ever thought about that? You are the superior being. Act like it. Folks, this is Because I Said So. I'm your host, John Rosemond. Our number, if you want to call us with a comment or a question, is 404-419-6499. You can go to my websites, either johnrosemond.com or parentguru.com. My books are listed there. I'll be back in a few. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, John Roseman. The show is Because I Said So, uh, exclusive to the American Family Radio Network. What we do here is talk about parenting issues. And our phone number is 404-419-6499. If you'd like to join us with a question or a comment, you can ask a question. You can comment on a previous question. You can comment on a previous show. Uh, love to hear from you. And right now, we have from the metropolis of Atlanta, Georgia, we have Kathy on the line. Kathy, I hope you're well. How can I help you? Hi, I'm good, and I am so delighted to get to ask you this question. I have a 15-year-old son who is academically inclined. He has four A's and two B's as of the mid-semester grading point. All right, Kathy, and, I want you to stop right there because uh, the question I'm going to ask is extremely relevant to the rest of this conversation. Uh, grades are relative to the educational environment that the child is in. So is your son in a public school, a private school, a Christian school, a parochial school? Uh, what type of school is he in? Because an A in a public school means something very, very different from an A in a top-flight private school, whether Christian or secular. So what uh, what type of school is he attending? He is in a private school, Woodward Academy. A Woodward Academy. I've, I know it well. I've spoken there a couple of times, as a matter of fact. And I know Woodward Academy, and this is uh, not a, uh, a an endorsement by any means. Woodward has not asked me to say this. I'm simply familiar with Woodward Academy. They are a top-flight independent school one of the best in the state of Georgia. And uh, the meaning of that is is simply this, that uh, 
Kathy, your son's grades are valid indications of his academic work ethic. Uh, four A's and two B's in a public school would not be a valid indication necessarily, but at Woodward Academy or a school like Woodward Academy in the in the Atlanta area, uh, let me tell you, those are valid indications of your son's academic work ethic. Good for him. Thank you. Thank you. He also plays on the junior varsity baseball team, so he's a well-rounded student in that he can handle practices at night, games on the weekend, and still keep his studies up. But my question is, how much Xbox is too much during the school week, given that he has good grades? Well, give me some history and context here. How long has he had the Xbox? Where is the Xbox? How much time does he spend... uh interfacing with the Xbox uh, on an average daily basis? Is he allowed to play it through the week? Uh, Give me that information so that I can uh, put this question into a proper framework, uh, Kathy. Well, much to my chagrin, I have to admit it is in his bedroom because uh, we allowed it, which was against my better judgment. It does reside in his bedroom, and I bet he plays mm, close to three hours a night on and off. He plays gaming matches, so it's not sit there and play solid for three hours leveling up. It's play a match, rest for 30, 40 minutes, play a match, rest, play a match. But it's still three hours a night during the the week. Well, Kathy, I've got a uh, penetrating question here for you, and uh, that is, and I've, I've heard this phrase before from parents, against my better judgment, I allowed this to happen. And I've always wondered, and I don't mean to be snarky about this, but um, uh, how is it that a parent can allow a child to do something that is against the parent's better judgment? How does that happen in the first place? Uh, It it was my nice way of saying that my husband thought it was perfectly normal and okayed it, uh, didn't run it by me first, and I did not have a chance to uh, say no before it was literally sitting in his bedroom, and I didn't take it out except for one time when he got a C, back when he was in public school three years ago, he got a C and he came home and there was no Xbox in his room. I did like you taught me years ago. Let me back up here for a moment, Kathy. Uh, First of all, you uh, are familiar with my writings. You've been to a couple of public presentations, I take it, of mine in the Atlanta area. And you are completely aware of my position concerning video games. I believe these devices to be diabolical and uh, completely uh, worthless in terms of uh, adding something to a teenager's quality of life. I don't care if he says he likes it or not. All of the research, and I mean all of it, done by people who are bringing objectivity to the issue as opposed to people who've been hired by video game manufacturers to uh, conjure up uh, statistics that uh, seem uh, supportive of video games. All of the research done by objective people finds nothing but negative outcomes to video games, that they negatively affect a child's emotional control, that... Quite often, kids who spend two or three hours a day on them are reported by their parents to have frequent emotional outbursts. Um, They do not assist 
with uh, mental processes. They may facilitate a reaction speed, but reaction speed is, you know, something uh, jet pilots need. Very few people need fast reaction speed. Um, but otherwise, they they don't have a positive outcome on general mental processes, problem solving, and so on. The research has found that kids who interact with these devices on a regular basis suffer social skills problems. And, and the primary one, however, which I almost forgot, is that consistently these kids' academic performance suffers because of video games. Now, you know, there's an important thing to understand here, however, though, and that is that research always speaks to a norm, Kathy. Yes. The results of research are graphed, and usually the results uh, look like a bell-shaped curve. And what the researchers are reporting is the average response in whatever situation, the average outcome What that means is that there are always, and coming back specifically to video games, there are always kids who use these games a lot who seem to have no negative outcome. And that's important to understand because it sounds to me like he's one of the kids who can use these devices, can interact with them, interface with these devices, and not experience a negative outcome. And added to that opinion is the fact that he is juggling other responsibilities, like the baseball team, with his academic responsibilities, Uh managing to keep his grades in a, again, very rigorous private school in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, at A's and a couple of B's. And uh, so... Uh, as difficult as this may be for you to accept, it would appear that your son is one of those kids. You know, it's equivalent to this, that, you know, some people can drink a, a bottle of wine a day and never become alcoholics, and other people drink a half a bottle a day and become alcoholics. Research speaks to a norm. It does not speak to individual instances. So that's one thing to keep in mind here. Even though these devices, and all the research supports this, are amotivational uh, on average, that they shorten attention span on average, that they depress social skills on average, that uh, they depress emotional control on average. And by the way, the research is increasingly finding that these games are literally, not figuratively, but literally addictive. We... In America, the average American thinks that in order for something to be addictive, there has to be a chemical involved, but that's not true. Gambling, for example, is addictive and there are no chemicals involved. And likewise, video games, which in fact are a form of gambling without money, but they they fit the paradigm very, very well, Uh, video games are in fact addictive. But again, I I circle back to the fact that your son appears to be one of those people who can play a video game, get up and walk away from it. Now, someone might argue that uh, a kid who is playing video games three hours a day is in fact addicted, that uh, the amount of time is the the relevant variable. And I would say, no, no, no. 
Uh, the time is not the relative variable. The relative variables here are the other stuff, the emotional uh, impulsivity, the lack of emotional control, the indication that the game has had an a-motivational impact on the child's academic work ethic, uh, the shortened attention span, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The addiction is when the child's obsession with the game overwhelms the child's ability to function properly in his family setting at school and in a social setting. And you're telling me that none of that is the case. So your son is definitely not addicted. Surprising to me, but he's not. Now, the other thing I'm going to uh, uh, bring up here is the if it ain't broke, don't fix it principle. Here is a high school kid doing well in a rigorous academic environment in Atlanta, Georgia, multiple responsibilities, doing well, and playing three hours of video games a night. So in the absence of a clear indication that this is harming him, and uh, there certainly is no evidence of that, and so... As startling as it may sound, I'm going to say leave the video game in his room. And another reason why is because if you leave the video game in his room, then if there is a problem in the future, academic or otherwise, you now have a way of dealing with the problem. You know, if his grades fall, uh, you can take the video game out of his room and say when your grades come back up, uh, we'll put the video game back in there. Uh, if he gets into trouble in school in some other way, take the video game out of the room for a period of time until the situation is rectified. So the video game at this uh, point in time provides you with uh, a way to motivate him, and I wouldn't uh, deprive yourself of that. Okay. Wow. Uh, that is a surprising answer from you, but it seems to make a lot of sense because then he would also see the reason why it has been removed and then be motivated to earn it back. Exactly. And, you know, hopefully you will never need to use this as some motivational uh, lever. But in the event that you need it, it's there. Wow. I love, I love that advice. I can do that. <laughs> well, I'm glad you love it. And, Kathy, we're, uh, we're out of time, unfortunately. Thanks for your question. It was a great question and one that I hope uh, will be beneficial to a lot of our listeners. And uh, we'll be right back. American Family Radio Network, it's Because I Said So. Now once again, here's your host, John Rosemond. Welcome back to the show, folks. Glad you could stay with us. Uh, the show is called Because I Said So, and indeed I am John Rosemond. I'm your host, and uh, our number, if you want to call us with a question or a comment, is 404-419-6499, or if you're the shy type, you can email us your question or comment at radio at rosemond, R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D dot com. A journalist recently asked how I would describe my parenting philosophy. I thought it was an interesting, if not somewhat obvious question. Three words came to mind. Traditional, biblical, and libertarian. It's 
traditional, pre-modern, if you will, because I'm not saying anything new. Your great-grandmother would agree with most, if not all, of what I say about kids, parental responsibilities, and how parents should execute those responsibilities. I believe the family should be marriage or parent-centered, that parents should run the show. I believe that parents should communicate to children the following understandings. Number one, whether you realize it or not, child of mine, I am always acting in your best interest. Number two, I know what I'm doing. I do not need to consult with you to make good parenting decisions. Number three, I tell you what to do. Number four, you do what I tell you to do. Number five, you do what I tell you to do because I said so. Number six, you are free to disagree with me within certain limits, but you are not free to disobey. And number seven, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I love you to death, but I really don't care how you feel or what you think about the decisions I make. Sounds pretty traditional, doesn't it? And in fact, it is. That was, in a nutshell, the parenting philosophy that prevailed in pre-1960s America, the America that I grew up in. It ensured to the greatest degree possible those seven understandings that the child would grow up, leave home as soon as he, she was capable of self-support and become a responsible citizen. It also ensured, to the greatest degree possible, the mental health of the child. It also ensured, to the greatest degree possible, the mental health of the entire family. Let me go over those seven things again. Number one, because they're important. Write them down if you've got a pen and a piece of paper with you. Number one, whether you realize it or not, child of mine, I am always acting in your best interest. Number two, I know what I'm doing. I don't need to consult with you in order to make a good parenting decision. Number three, I tell you what to do. Number four, you do what I tell you to do. Number five, you do what I tell you to do for no reason other than because I told you to do it. Number six, you're free to disagree with me within certain limits, but you're not free to disobey. And number seven, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Child of mine, I love you to death, but I really don't care how you feel or what you think about the decisions I make. The fact is, the research confirms common sense in this regard. The most obedient kids are, in fact, the happiest kids. Two things happened in the 1960s, folks, and I was there. You know, I... I was born in 1947. I grew up in the 1950s. I came of age in the 1960s, entered college 1965, and I watched, and I really didn't understand what was going on. I thought I did, but I didn't. I watched the psychological parenting revolution shatter all seven of those understandings. Two things happened in the 1960s. The traditional authority of parents in the home was demonized by the mental health community who were now emerging as 
parenting experts, resulting in the Democratic Family Experiment proposed by best-selling authors, psychologist Thomas Gordon and family counselor Dorothy Briggs, both of whom explicitly stated that the parent-child relationship should be conducted as if it was a relationship between equals. And the second thing that happened in the 1960s was obedience to traditional authority was demonized by the mental health community. Using bogus research, and it was bogus, they claimed that obedience led straight to a fascist society. As a result of this bogus psychological propaganda, parents began to feel that their authority over their kids was illegitimate. They began consulting with their children when it came to making decisions, thus giving their children the impression that the parent-child relationship was one in which parent and child shared power equally. In fact, that's what Briggs and Gordon actually said. The psychological community also said that good parenting was all about letting children express their feelings freely and always taking children's feelings into consideration when making decisions. And so, as a result of that very unbiblical propaganda, remember the Bible says foolishness is bound in the heart of the child. You're not supposed to take a child's feelings seriously. Not most of them anyway. When children reacted emotionally to parental decisions, instead of disciplining that form of defiance, suddenly parents began negotiating with children and began to believe furthermore that the negotiation wasn't over with until the child was satisfied. And all of that is precisely what Thomas Gordon, the best-selling parenting author of the 70s, who wrote a book called Parent Effectiveness Training in 1971, told parents, he said that all such negotiations, now let me go over this again. You make a decision, your child doesn't like it, you have to now negotiate. And Gordon furthermore said, all such negotiations had to result in a win-win outcome, otherwise the parent was being a tyrant. Well, the fact is, Children are tyrants by nature. This approach to parenting released the inner tyrant in the child. It gave the child permission to be a brat. Today's parents do not realize they are the inheritors of this very, very successful parenting propaganda effort that was put forth by the mental health community in this country. That's the reason today's parents get down into that dumb-looking crouch when they talk to their kids. The mental health professional community invented, cut out of thin air, this idea, when you talk to your child, get down to your child's level. Look like you're a child, too. Look like you're no taller than a child. See, this is all part of this egalitarian parenting effort. And that's why blatant forms of disobedience in children are so common today. Folks, people my age, you know, I'm 68 years old. We we just absolutely marvel at what we hear kids say to their parents. Uh, you know, a, a parent will say, 
you know, Billy, I, I need you to, you know, do this. Why? Why? You didn't tell him not to. I mean, just the, the talking back, the refusal, the belligerence. It's, I mean, folks, you young people in this audience, in this radio audience, you may not understand this. This kind of stuff was unheard of before we began listening to psychologists and other mental health professionals tell us how to raise children. The mental health professional community in America, I can't say it often enough or loud enough, has just thrown one monkey wrench after another into something that was working. It was called child rearing. It wasn't even called parenting back then. This is why so many kids belligerently refuse to do what their adult parents tell them to do, what their teachers tell them to do. It's why so many kids three and older, whoa, they're hitting their parents when their parents don't please them. Parent authority once ruled the American home. Today, the child tyrant rules the home. And everyone is engaged in a mass cover-up of this. Instead of calling it what it is, instead of putting the blame for this where it belongs, which is right at the feet of America's mental health professional community, who are, as I said before, still beating the same 1960s egalitarian parenting drum. Parents take these problems when they get to a certain level to the very people who caused them, psychologists. And all they get is testing, diagnosis, and medication. Testing, diagnosis, and medication. Testing, diagnosis. That is the treadmill that you get on when you go see a so-called therapist these days. The myth is that there's something wrong with a child who disobeys. He's got some genetic or biochemical disorder inherited from his father, no doubt. His disobedience is a matter of his biology. Therefore, he needs medical treatment. He needs expensive pharmaceutical drugs, which, by the way, have never reliably outperformed placebos in double-blind clinical trials, and you can take that to the bank. These drugs, in effect, are nothing more than expensive placebos with side effects. Bicarbonate of soda doesn't have a side effect, folks. Well, it might make you burp. Nope. The problem is not children. The problem is not genes. The problem is not biochemicals. It's a culture-wide parenting philosophy and set of practices that gives the child the child's inner tyrant, free reign. And this problem is not going to be solved by psychologists, family counselors, therapists, blah, blah, blah. They don't know what they're doing. And remember, folks, I am one. And therefore, there's no one more qualified to say what I just said than me. The problem's not going to be solved with therapy or drugs. It's going to be solved by parents who take control of their families and do what parents did in the 1960s and before, rule in a manner that teaches children to eventually rule themselves, raise good citizens, do America a favor. Remember, folks, proper parenting is an act of love for God and your neighbor. I'm John Roseman. The show is Because I Said So. You can call us at 404-419-6499. We'll be back in a moment right after this break. Oh. 
All righty then. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, John Roseman. The show is Because I Said So. Carried exclusively on American Family Radio. The show is all about what is now known as parenting. And our number is 404-419-6499 if you'd like to call us with a question or a comment. Once again, 404-419-6499. Or if you prefer some anonymity, uh, you can always email your question to us at radio at Rosemond. And that's R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D dot com. And we do have a caller in the line on the line. Uh, it's Tanya from the great state of Mississippi. Tanya, how can I help you? Hi, Dr. Roseman. My question is, um, I work with elementary and secondary educators often, and our classrooms are inundated with procedures and programs that help with classroom management. And one of those is called the conscious discipline. And from what I can tell, it seems to be based in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is kind of an accepted foundation in education, um, and they construct many things from that. So I would like to better understand its history and what it's grounded in. Could you help me with that? Well, I'd love to be able to help you, Tanya, and... um since I wasn't as a parent uh, during my parenting years practicing conscious parenting, maybe I was unconscious and need to revisit all those years and, mm-hmm. and do something to make up to my children for the fact that I wasn't fully conscious. Um, the fact of the matter is that I don't read parenting books. I'm a parenting expert, but I'm not a parenting expert expert. And the reason I don't read other people's parenting stuff is because I realized early on when I was reading it, thinking, oh, I got to keep up with all this stuff. You know, after all, it's my field. I realized that I was letting other people's opinions, other people's points of view, other people's advice color my own point of view and uh, knock it slightly wobbly and off course. And so I just stopped reading parenting books pretty much uh, entirely. The irony is I've written 20 if you count the revisions, the updates, the upgrades. You know, somebody will send me a a brand new parenting book, the latest thing, and I will read a smattering of stuff in it, a page here, a page there. And believe me, a smattering of stuff is all I need to get the, uh, the general gist of things and to understand the author's point of view. And it's his point of view that is important. His advice is a function of his point of view concerning children and parental responsibilities. So now we have this thing, conscious parenting. Uh, You know, let's not be unconscious. Let's be conscious. Anyway, this stuff just, uh, you know, the the whole idea that there's now a new way of doing things just irritates the living daylights out of me. Uh, God has told us how to raise his children. Uh, Do you really think that God would have given us inadequate instructions to do the most important thing that can be done, and that is raise children and prepare them for the kingdom? Uh, It's inconceivable. We don't need humanism. We don't need behaviorism. We don't need Freudianism. We don't need gestalt psychologists. Um, Tanya, you probably know this. You've been listening to the show for a while. Uh, Many of my regular listeners know this. 
but it bears repeating for those people who are new to the show, and that is that I'm an outlier in my field. I think psychology is responsible for most of the problems American parents are having today, uh, which are problems their great-grandparents didn't have. And I believe that especially in the Christian community, we need to unplug from psychological advice quickly and get back to Main Street, which is the street our great-grandparents lived on when it came to the rearing of children, and get back there quickly and begin doing things the right biblical way in the raising of kids and, and um, the, uh, the operation of families once again. We need to do this very, very quickly. A, a lot depends upon it. What most people don't understand is, and I understand it because I'm a psychologist, I see the profession from the inside, no psychological theory has ever been verified through objective research, none. Isn't that startling? The efficacy of no psychological therapy has ever been verified. The reliable efficacy of no psychological therapy has ever been verified through objective research. In other words, research conducted by people who have no dog in the race. Uh, The research, in fact, finds that people with high school educations give advice that's every bit as good as people with PhDs. And um, I'm a guy who doesn't even think that my profession qualifies to be a restricted profession. You ought not to have a license to go be a counselor. You want to be a counselor? Go be a counselor and let marketplace forces separate the wheat from the chaff, which they will do very, very quickly. Yeah, so all that having been said, uh, perhaps to some people's relief, um, <laughs> I, uh, I turn back to you, Tanya. I've heard of this conscious discipline stuff. I've heard about it for a couple of years. Quite frankly, I've never been interested. But now that you've asked the question, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the Internet. And I'm going to learn as much about it as I can, and I'm going to talk about it in an upcoming show. And uh, I'm going to uh, undoubtedly expose it for what it is, and that is more babble. But, you know, um, Tanya, you know something about it. Uh, you're you're uh, in a classroom situation where its use is being mandated by the state, And so, you know, you've got some experience with it. So how about you tell me and our listening audience what you think about it? It's some of the social-emotional relationship to students being the key factor in helping them to um, be aware of where they are in whatever decisions they're making so that they can own and redirect their behaviors as facilitated by a teacher. Well, so give me an example here, Tanya. I'm just going to throw something out to you. Let's say a child, a seven-year-old child, calls his uh, second-grade teacher by a nasty epithet. Uh, How would the conscious discipline proponent um, advocate dealing with that? Um, Typically, there is this first stage where you make the child aware of what's what's transpiring and where they're coming from. You are angry. You, you called me a name. You name whatever it is. And then from there, once you establish some kind of eye contact and, and relationship, usually it's proximity and um, your stance position, then you move into 
Now, let's go to a second place. What's really going on with you? What's really happening? And then you try to tap into whatever the real problems are and identify those and make the child aware of where that is. Then it goes into the next stage where you say, now, what what are we going to do about this? This is not okay. You're not allowed to call me this. So there's typically three levels or three layers of most of it from what I can gather from the information that I've been exposed to. So I'm very curious as to how that um, plays into a child and simply going, that's wrong, you're not about to do that. So their, their premise is you don't just send them away or send them out of a classroom for doing those things. You need to address it because they're only going to come back and repeat the behaviors because nothing has changed. Well, So that's where it's coming from. Yeah, you know, the, here, here's the here's the deal and the bottom line, if you will. Uh, ever since the late 1960s, um, the American public school system has been attaching itself to one uh, nouveau classroom management system after another. Each one promising to uh, you know. Uh, create uh, behavioral nirvana in the American classroom. And uh, this is just the latest iteration of these bandwagons that have paraded themselves through America's public schools. And indeed, if one talks to older teachers as much as I do, it is impossible to come to any conclusion other than None of these classroom behavior management systems have worked. Uh, Teachers knew they weren't going to work from the very outset, that they were unrealistic, that they were theoretical, that they weren't practical. I mean, just from your description, Tanya, what teachers got the time to be doing that? You know, let's, let's talk about the fact that you call me a nasty name. Let's try and find out what really happened to you. Let's find out what you know, what you're really saying. Let's find out what um, what the problem really is. Well, I can tell you what the problem really is. The children in question are undisciplined brats. There's nothing the school can do to correct these problems in the absence of parents who are completely on board. They're going to follow up at home. They're not going to defend their children. That is the key to classroom behavior management is parents. It's not conscious discipline. It's not you know, any newfangled discipline by any name. Tanya, thanks an awful lot for your call. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I oftentimes uh, talk about my books on this program, including my latest, Grandma Was Right After All, in which I seek to recover Grandma's wisdom by resurrecting her very pithy parenting aphorisms of the 1950s and before. These are parenting principles that sprang from a biblical view of the world, principles from the good old days that are just as valid today and will help your kids succeed in life. More information is available on my website at johnroseman.com. This is Because I Said So, a call-in program all about what is today called parenting. Next week, we'll get together at the same time, 5 Central. Why? Because I said so.
from Creative Genius Productions and the American Family Radio Network. Take care. God bless.